Wait a second. This isn't your grandma's cancer show. Not your grandma's cancer show. Hi, I'm Tatum Duruk, and today is part one of two podcasts about infertility. This can be such a huge subject. It can bring up so many emotions. It can be really confusing and overwhelming. And so that's why I'm really, really delighted to have two brilliant guests with me today. I have Dr. Cheryl Fitzgerald, and she is a consultant gynecologist in reproductive medicine in central Manchester. And I also have Hannah, who works with me at Shine, um, who is awesome. She's been on the podcast before, but she hasn't shared her story about infertility and the options that she's explored and the ones that she has yet to explore. So I'm really looking forward to hearing about her experience. And Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us today. No, it's a pleasure. I think it's such an important topic. Obviously, it's um, what I spend a lot of my working life doing. So I think it's extremely important. Yeah. So uh, tell me a little bit about your role and, and how you get to see other people with cancer coming to you? I specialise in in reproductive medicine, which is really, I suppose, fertility. Um, And realised many years ago that we had a very good um, service for banking sperm from men who were going to have treatment that would destroy their sperm and and potentially render them with fertility problems. Um, But we didn't really do much for women. And, And actually, at that time, there really wasn't that much you could do for women. In 2008, we set up a female fertility preservation service at St. Mary's. Um, and so that's now expanded. So we see we see patients urgently who are about to maybe have chemotherapy or radiotherapy or surgery, um, usually for cancer, but, but sometimes for other reasons. So some patients with rheumatological disease will have chemo. And we know that all of those treatments affect fertility. So we see those patients to see whether there's anything that we can do before they have their treatment to maximize their options in the future. And then I think sort of in more recent years, we've really extended that out very greatly to seeing lots of patients who've had cancer um, and who are then left with the effects of of, of their treatment, either of their cancer or of the treatment they've had for their cancer. And we we see them to look at uh, at their fertility options at that point. So can you tell me about the different kinds of ways that cancer can affect um, fertility? So there are lots of ways in which cancer can affect fertility. So sometimes the cancer itself can affect fertility. So if you have cancer of the womb, say, and you need to have a hysterectomy, then obviously that has a big impact. We see that chemotherapy can affect fertility, and that really affects it by reducing the number of eggs in the ovaries. And sometimes it reduces that number so that women don't have as long to get pregnant. Or sometimes it can reduce the number to mean that actually those women don't have any eggs. So they they can't use their own eggs to get pregnant. And then the third thing really is radiotherapy, because that can also destroy eggs. And and also if you have pelvic radiotherapy, that can also unfortunately destroy the ability of the womb to carry a pregnancy. So there are lots and lots of things um, that can impact on fertility. And I think the other thing that I suppose the sort of 
I suppose slightly softer things that you you need to consider are that sometimes if you you know patients if they're diagnosed with cancer at the age of 36 it may take them two or three years to get through that cancer pathway um, and actually the decline in fertility that happens with age at that point is is significant so that can affect it and I think also I think there's quite a lot of evidence around the fact that women who have cancer and men who have cancer and who have treatment for it, um, it, it it's a big psychological hit. And we know that, you know, there are some long-term issues with relationships and they're difficult conversations to have with partners. You know, do you say that on your first date or do you, you know, do you wait until you're two years in and then somebody might say, well, hang on, why didn't you tell me that? Um, so I think in, in so many ways, I think the disease and the treatment and those long-term consequences can, can really affect fertility. Yeah, absolutely. And do you ever get people um, coming to you, sort of, you know, they've just been diagnosed, they're just about to go into treatment, everything's a whirlwind, and they actually don't know whether they want to have kids or not? Do you... Yeah, I think that's very common because, you know, at, at sort of 17, 18, you know, we see girls who are that age. and I think for... For, for boys, for men, it's, um, um, well, maybe I'd say like a lot, a lot of life, it can often be a little bit easier. Um, because actually, if they get referred to us, banking a sample of sperm can be done really without very much thought. It doesn't take time. It's very quick. It's very easy. And it's almost something I think we would suggest that that boys and men just do and almost just don't don't think about it. It's easy. It's if they decide in the future they don't want to use that sperm, and a lot of men don't, um, it's not such a big ask. I think the difficulty is for women is actually the treatment to get the eggs out is actually quite complicated. And that sometimes can also give additional risk. Um, it takes time. So sometimes there isn't time or you have to suggest delaying chemo, maybe just by a week or so. But I think those conversations are quite difficult and as you say to to go through treatment which is quite difficult treatment which hasn't got a great success rate always you know with, with egg freezing and to do that when you really don't know if you if that's something you want in the future it is difficult I think I tend to very much take it from the point of view that if girls or women think they can do it just do it um, because actually the, the sort of the risks are really quite small. And I think at the time of a cancer diagnosis, you are bombarded with so much information. You know, if you go down this treatment, this is 87%, this treatment is 47%, yep. you know, 85%, and this is at five years, this is 10 years. And it's it's an absolute nightmare. I think there's so much information to take on that we tend to talk to women at that point very much about at this point, is there anything we can do to reduce the risk from the treatment you're having? And do you want to bank any eggs? And if you think possibly you do, then just do it. And I think we very much have the conversation that we don't talk about long-term effects at that point because I think patients are overloaded. Mm -hmm. So we see all patients, we ask them to, to actually contact us about, about sort of nine months after they finish their cancer treatment and come back for a follow-up. And then at that point, we can talk to them about a lot, a lot more really and, and, and assess their fertility and talk to them about their options at that point. I see I've spoken to quite a lot of people and I've never actually heard of anyone going in to talk about fertility 
quite as soon after treatment. And I was really reassured in hearing that from you that I think a lot of people sort of feel quite dismissed about it. And, you know, there's sort of this imagining that you have to wait years. And yet for some people, depending on the kind of cancer and, you know, what they've been through, actually knowing that there is some kind of pathway, there is some kind of option and not waiting for years and years to even find that out, but actually finding that out sooner, I can imagine being quite reassuring. If somebody is um, hearing this and they're like, oh, you know, how how do I find out? Like, do I have any eggs left? You know, is it possible my sperm is still working? What are the tests or who can they ask to see? I think one of the problems for women, especially if you look at chemotherapy, what it does is it reduces the egg number. It doesn't always destroy eggs completely. And if you have a significant reduction in egg number, then you will still have periods. Um, you may still get pregnant, but there are still implications for your fertility. So I think if you're not having periods, then obviously it's important to look at why you're not having periods. And that frequently is unfortunately because the, the treatment has destroyed the eggs that are there. Um, but if the egg number's low, then you don't know. And But we can we can easily assess that with, with blood tests and, and with a scan. I think the other thing that happens after treatment is there are some patients who I can I suppose I'd always say to people just if you are having treatment for any malignancy just keep fertility on your radar and you will have to think that little bit more about planning a pregnancy you don't just think oh well you know I'll get my coil taken out and see what happens you have to sort of plan a little bit more and that's that's particularly important for women with breast cancer who are on tamoxifen and they may have a tamoxifen break and I think those women, I'd always say to them before, if your oncologist is saying, actually, you could have a break in your tamoxifen from December, come and see us in June. Come and see us six months before. We'll see what's happening fertility-wise because we need those women need to get pregnant quickly. They can't take two years to get pregnant because that's that's their break. So I think it's I think it's just about keeping that issue around fertility up up in your mind. Um and actually, and, and seeking out help early. But I think it's very, I feel it's very helpful for those patients to come in at, at sort of nine months or so after they've finished treatment. Because, you know, sometimes, you know, if a girl has a lymphoma and has chemo, actually it can have minimal effect. And that's lovely. You know, we do the tests and we say, do you know what, actually, you look really the same as you did before. Um, and so actually then that lifts away yes. of those patients. Yeah, and I, I think there is a problem. It, it's almost better to know it than to not know it. Um, yes. Um, so I think it is, it, I hope it's helpful. There is so much uncertainty. There's so much anxiety. And, you know, no matter what the, the news is, waiting so long to even get some kind of guidance on it, I think just adds to everything else that's going on. And while you were talking then about, you know, sort of that idea of, planning is looking different. Um, mm -hmm. I just remembered there was a, a friend of a friend who um, had gone out with her boyfriend and I think they'd, they'd done it in the car and then they went and got burgers afterwards and as she was eating her burger, she went, I'm pregnant. And she was. <laughs> and I heard that story and just burst into tears. 
And it just the absolute unfairness of yes. like this, you know, this one world or, you know, for, for many of us who were younger beforehand, that you were always trying not to get pregnant, you know, so you spent your life on contraceptions and like, oh, you know, oh, God, is my period late? And, oh, you know, mm-hmm. suddenly this thing that seems so easy and so possible and whether it would have been for you, I know other people have challenges, but then it becomes, yeah, something that needs to be really thought out and considered and sort of researched and kept in the forefront. Is there anything that when someone's going through that, that you recommend in terms of a resource? And I mean, in your role, do you ever mention counselling to people? Are there specific services for that? So I think, uh, uh, you know, across the NHS, there's a there's not a lot of counselling. I mean, we're very lucky. I work in an IVF unit and we we have to have counsellors. I mean, that's that's part of our our service. Um, And so our counsellors are certainly available for any of our oncology patients and they can see them. They can see them afterwards. But I think you're quite right. I think there is that thing of you do spend your whole life trying to not get pregnant. And you think, oh, you know, everybody gets pregnant. As soon as they look at somebody, they're pregnant. Right. <laughs> um, it's actually not true for an awful lot of patients and mm-hmm. um, for an awful lot of people. Um, but I think I think it is really difficult after oncology because it's, it, you know, you shouldn't get cancer when you're 22. You know, cancer should happen to old people um, and you know, old people like me. But, you know, you kind of... Um, you shouldn't have that at that age. And then to have this, oh, you've got this, you know, and you're going to have this treatment. That oh, and actually, by the way, you, you probably won't be able to have a baby in the future, but forget that. Um, that little add-on, I think, you know, and I think a lot of the patients we see, actually, maybe they say it just because, because they're in our clinic, but, you know, a lot of them say almost the issue around not being able to have a baby in the future is as as damaging to their their kind of psychological well-being as, as, as the diagnosis itself, really. Absolutely. Yeah. And and it's so long lasting. Yeah. Um, that that sense of grief, that sense of loss, mm-hmm. that in, 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 in it's intangible almost to other people, um, that kind of invisible nature of that kind of grief. Um, well, I think we see that all the, with all of our infertility patients and I think you know if you if you had a stillbirth people would absolutely rally around they probably wouldn't really know what to say but they would they would totally talk about it as a big loss whereas I think if you have infertility um I think people don't know what to say but I don't think it's such a big problem and I think you know we hear all the time from all sorts of patients that you know friends will say oh well you know you're lucky you can have better holidays and oh you know you can get a better car and that's not what anybody wants you know if you want a baby you want a baby you know you don't want two dogs and a, and a Porsche you want you want a baby yeah I think people don't really know what to say no no I was told to get a dog as well yeah I mean it's it is the most ridiculous thing to say to somebody why don't you get a dog I mean it's just and I think it is because people don't know what to say but it's ludicrous isn't it yeah, and well, it's it's, uh, and I'd love to bring uh, Hannah into the conversation here. So, Hannah, tell me how you know Cheryl. So, I, I was actually diagnosed with uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma in two thousand and fourteen. Um, 
you've got cancer that doesn't affect your fertility um so um unfortunately with blood cancers once they find it they generally have to treat you quite quickly so i didn't have the time to do fertility preservation but i did bring the question up and i was told that post my six month treatment my fertility probably would be okay and that actually we just needed to crack on with chemo and as anybody knows, when you get a cancer diagnosis, it's a whirlwind and all these things get thrown at you. Your world changes overnight and you just have to crack on really with treatment. You don't really have much option. So I went through the six months treatment. Um, I spoke to a couple of friends along the way and they kind of pointed out to me that, you know, it's all right having my eggs frozen or doing some fertility before I start treatment. But actually, if I'm dead, what use are they to me? It's quite a valid argument, I guess. So I might have my eggs in a freezer, but I don't actually progress with my treatment then. I guess that's a bit tricky. Um, but unfortunately, I didn't respond to my first line treatment. So I was at one in 10 statistic that doesn't respond to treatment. Um, so I had to have a load more chemotherapy in order to get me to remission. Um, but we knew at that point that if I got to remission, I probably wouldn't stay there. So I'd have to have something called a stem cell transplant or a bone marrow transplant. Um, so I asked for a break in treatment at the point where I got to remission without having any longer term impact on, on my longer term treatment. But I then um, was referred across to Cheryl's clinic and uh, met Cheryl. And we did try to do some egg harvesting, but I literally took the shortest window, which back then was three months. And I don't know whether that's still the case now. So I was three months off treatment um, before I could even start the egg harvesting. And uh, really that window is, is not the recommended window. I think they'd prefer you to sort of wait a year um, so that you've got a better chance of um, trying to harvest some eggs. The one thing I didn't know was that, um, and again, because I'm not a gynecologist, I didn't know this, that we're actually only born with the amount of eggs we're born with. So once they're gone, they're gone. I think I naively thought that we create some each month and kind of you could produce them until they've kind of stopped being produced. But um, the actual fertility um, preservation itself is also very clinical. So you're injecting yourself with hormones, which when you're kind of all being through chemo and you're doing a lot of that, that that's also quite intense. So um, I was doing injections for quite a significant period of time. And then I was in and out of the clinic quite a lot, um, some days back to back or a couple of days gaps. Um, so I did try. Unfortunately, I didn't stimulate enough eggs for us to harvest any. So I guess you'd class it as an epic fail. Um, but I guess I've got the peace of mind that at least I've tried. Um, I think if I knew what I knew now, I think I would have liked to have tried before I started treatment. But I mean, you can't go down that road, can you? You've just got to accept the position you find yourself in. Um, and as I always say, as part of the programmes we deliver, like, let's face it, nobody ever puts cancer on a life plan. And I think we grow up, don't we, thinking, well, one day I might have a partner, a life partner, if that's what you want, and I might have children. Um, and you don't necessarily think about when that might be. But I guess at 34, um, I probably should have had my children before then, but I was single, so it was not really an option for me. Um, so yeah, I, I can then... just hear you being really hard on yourself just then. I mean, again, most people that are 34, you know, so many are just thinking about it. But I think it just shows sometimes, you know, I did the same thing. I, you know, I, I it's so easy to kind of go, oh, I can hear the, the, the toughness. Like, why, why didn't I do it sooner? But like you just said, we never plan to get so sick, um, yeah. you know. <laughs> The problem with treatment is it gets thrown at you. Your world turns upside down. Like yeah. your normality is going to work, going out to the pub with your mates and, and having a, a living your best life. And so all of a sudden, like it gets removed, work gets removed and you're suddenly in all this hospital stuff and you've lost your body identity and everything else that comes with chemo. 
Um, so, but I sort of got to the end of fertility preservation and I was offered some counselling. But for me, I then had to go straight into a stem cell transplant. So I part that up. I was like, you know, what, I'll come back to that. And I was probably deluding myself a little bit, but, you know, I'll come back to that a bit later on. Let's go and crack on with the stem cell transplant. Um, so I had the stem cell transplant and um, I always had the option to go back to Cheryl's clinic just to kind of get an understanding as to what had happened to my fertility post all of my treatment. Um, but was very aware that a stem cell transplant was probably likely to finish off any chances of my own fertility um and it was quite a long recovery from the stem cell transplant so i think it was a good probably two and a half maybe three years post uh, all of that before i went back to see cheryl just to see i think i just needed to know where i was at i probably knew myself really but i just probably needed well i know i needed somebody just to tell me that you know what there isn't any options there for you in terms of your own fertility but that then also gave me the opportunity to talk uh, about what options are out there. So there's things like donor eggs or donor embryos, um, which because I've effectively got the equipment, but I've got nothing to put in the equipment. Um, and I guess I'm probably a bit sort of matter of fact about it these days, but um, probably my way of coping with it um, gave me some options, but also being single, remove some of your options as well. Uh, and I know that over time that's probably improved slightly in some areas, but Actually, if you're looking to try and get funded treatment through the NHS, you do need to be in a stable relationship in order to get access to that support. And I presume that's still the case, is it, Cheryl? Yes, I think so. Before patients, um, when they are diagnosed, before they have chemotherapy, we can. Um, and again, this isn't this isn't the case over the whole country, but in the northwest, we're we're quite lucky. So in Greater Manchester, we're allowed to try sort of egg freezing on on anybody who we feel clinically it's sensible to do it there aren't any sort of eligibility criteria when patients come back to discuss treatment they then become infertility patients and infertility as a as a whole um is subject to a huge number of eligibility criteria so occasionally now single women can be treated um but quite often not uh, there are age restrictions you know, if you've got previous children, if you smoke, if you're overweight, all sorts of things. So at that point, when patients come back, they they are subject to these eligibility criteria, which do vary across the country um, and can be really difficult to negotiate. But I think I would say to anybody, if you, you know, just, just ask your GP for a referral, go and talk to somebody, find out what's going on. Um, you can find out what's going on. And, you know, like Hannah, if... if you know, if the if the news is bad news, if it is that there aren't any eggs, you know, I think it, it's very, very difficult for girls who've had pelvic radiotherapy or even TBI can occasionally affect the womb. And then you're talking about surrogacy and that's a whole, you know, that's very, very, very difficult. But certainly egg donation, if it's an egg problem, egg donation is pretty common, really. We, you know, we do, we do a lot of egg donation. There's a lot of egg donation in the country. It's relatively straightforward. It's not how I think anybody ever envisages having their family. You know, when you're eight and you're thinking about having a baby in the future, you're not always thinking about involving somebody else. But um, it's it's actually something that's very successful. And I think patients do really come round to it um, and actually are absolutely delighted by it. You know, and it, and it is then very much their baby. You know, the, the, the genes have come from a donor, but it... I think that you know those women do very much see it as their baby. I don't. I don't think it's something that then causes a long-term problem. Um, so I think it's certainly worth getting the information so that so that you know what your options are. I think that's just really important. 
Yeah, and I could really hear that in what you were saying, Hannah, um, in terms of being able to go to Cheryl and kind of be able to know where you're at. Um, and and you look like you have a thought. Yeah, I think like options give you choices, don't they? Um, and let's face it, chemo takes away a lot of choices, as we know. And uh, well, cancer diagnosis, sorry, takes away a lot of um, choices. So I think it's good to know what your options are. And you alluded earlier to dating and go and get a dog or go and buy yourself a Porsche. But I mean, those are comments that people make mm-hmm. along with, oh, we'll just go down the adoption route um, because that's a really easy option as well. Like, But I, I know it comes from a good place, but actually um, I think Cheryl made a really good point that if somebody had had a stillbirth, then actually there's a lot more empathy around that. Whereas actually if your fertility is removed um, or isn't there to start with, then actually, yeah, people try and give you a solution to fix it. And it, I guess it's very similar to when we get diagnosed. People try and, I don't know, put put gloves around it, don't they, to kind of make themselves feel more comfortable or to actually probably protect the person themselves. And they don't necessarily mean any harm, but actually mm-hmm. sometimes actually we just want to hear that, you know what, that's really unfair. unfair. Yeah. And actually that's not, that's not necessarily something that's ever openly discussed really. Cheryl? Fertility patients, not limited to oncology fertility patients, but fertility patients as a whole always do describe it's a sort of a, it's a you are grieving and mourning the children you haven't got you know it's not just it's not just a little bit at the edge you do feel that that loss as you as you would you just feel the loss the fact that you haven't had the child you still Mm -hmm. feel the loss of that child or that baby yeah and it's the loss of the life that you were going to have you know like waiting at the school gates I mean just there can be these little tiny things you know planning an eighth birthday party or, you know, then, and and it doesn't go because then, you know, there's that, I'm never going to be a grandma. Like, yeah. it can be a constant gap. What I would say for myself, um, I didn't get to have children, um, but that, and that grief was definitely experienced for a long time. And I definitely had some, um, you know, some moments uh, where I got irrationally angry or irrationally, you know, at, um, you know, celebrities mostly having babies. I don't know. I didn't want to get upset at my friends, but celebrities. I was like, how dare you? Uh, you know, I don't want to hear about your baby. Like, why? Or, you know, a work thing. Oh, we're having a baby. Like, I don't care. <laughs> like, no. It sounds awful. You know, no, it just like... I'll say that to all infertility patients. It's really difficult because often then you're at the age where suddenly everybody's popping mm-hmm. them out right there. And, you know, if it's your best friend, you feel obliged to be happy for her and you shouldn't be happy for her because it's what you want, you know, and it's, it's human nature to be a bit resentful, you know, and I don't, I don't think you should beat yourself up about that because it's what you really want and something is stopping you having that. And I think it's... I don't think you can just think, oh, well, I have to be really happy for all these people because mm. it's not fair. It's just not fair. Yeah, I I know for me with time, because it has been quite a bit of time now, I have gotten to the point where that kind of grief is a bit more integrated. It doesn't mean that it never comes back up, but it isn't as raw as it was in the beginning. Like almost when when I knew that it was, okay, this is the actual end, there was, although it was horrible and not the resolution that I wanted, there was something about, okay, now is the beginning of 
holding that space for it and moving past and still being happy. Um, so it, it can be a really tough thing and it it can be something that you carry a little bit more lightly, um, although I still have still have my days. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Hannah... Yeah, that's, that's true. I, and, and I'll often say to patients, if I see them and, and the news is really bad, I will often say this this is this is the worst bit now. Yeah. This is the worst consultation and that's done. It's only going to get better. It will it might take a very long time to get better, but this bit doesn't get any worse. You've 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 got that information now and you can start to hopefully um get better with living with that awful consequence. I just think you're so lovely. Like I just want to say, like I wish there was just multiple Cheryls all over the country for all of us to get to see. (laughs) The last thing on God's earth he'd want is multiple Cheryls. That's very kind of you to say. Yeah, it just you really hear that empathy, and 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 that's the tough thing, and kind of a bit of what we've been talking about is that it's not always met with that level of understanding. It's often, well, you know, you did have cancer and you're alive. Shouldn't you just be okay with it? Or we're really hard on ourselves. Like, well, why didn't I have kids sooner? Oh, I thought about it, and oh, I broke up with so and so, or you know, maybe I should have. Could have, would have, should have. Um, Hannah, I can see you giggling. Yeah, you start, start to look at your previous relationships, don't you, to say, well, were they actually that bad? And then you like, you pull yourself together and think, really? <laughs> yes, yes, they were that bad. They were actually not bad. Um, but yeah, I mean, the problem is you can't really escape children, can you? Everywhere you go, there's some children. I'm not suggesting you should want to escape children, but um, if you are trying not to be reminded of it, it's really difficult. And like social media can be triggers, can't it? First day at school, I mean, honestly, everybody, every mm-hmm. well, it's just, yeah. it's everywhere, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I think the problem is Facebook's only really used as a platform to highlight the really good days, but it doesn't really highlight the Mondays when the kids are driving them mad and all the rest of it. But actually, you know, you can see a child being told off in a supermarket for being naughty, but actually you can sort of secretly smile that you'd quite like to experience that. Um, but I'm sure the parent that's experiencing the naughty child that's having a tantrum in the middle of the supermarket probably isn't thinking that right at that point. So it's really difficult to um, escape these things, really. And I think a bit like yourself, Tatum, I've been out, I've sort of been aware of this now for a while and I, I secretly I probably still sort of kid myself that maybe there's options but I'm now what 42 so I'm aware as well that I'm older but for me it also brought up the morality piece because actually I've got quite a lot of problems post-treatment so I could potentially have a baby but actually could my body cope with that but then actually if my body copes with having a baby through a donor then actually would I cope with having a baby because of all the hospital stuff that's still Mm -hmm. in my life so then it brings up a whole other dimension of well then if something happens to me what happens to the child am I being fair am I being selfish or is it the right thing to do is it the wrong thing to do and I know I'm not the only one that thinks that if you get to a shy meetup um, these sorts of things that quite often get discussed because actually they're not the sorts of conversations you can have generally with your peer groups Although they may suffer from infertility, they don't necessarily suffer from the health challenges that um, our community Mm -hmm. suffer from as well. So there's a whole different remit of things that also come up for debate or you sort of overthink perhaps in your own head, which we're we're all quite good at, aren't we? Let's face it, at certain times that we probably challenge ourselves on rightly or wrongly. Yeah. And other people that you speak to, they tend to go, oh, you'll be fine. 
You know, like, why are you worrying about that? It could happen to anybody. And you're like, oh, you know, this this is kind of a different kind of consideration, you know, when you're thinking about bringing a child into the world, knowing what you know about your health. Um, and you want to have a space to express that to those fears, which I think are really normal fears. Um but often, again, there's like there's no like friends don't necessarily understand. And I think it really is being around other people who have been in that position or, you know, experts um, that have worked with people that are like, yeah, like to have that space to talk, I think, makes such a massive difference. Cheryl, is that something you see a lot? And I think I think also I was going to add something is, you know, I, I didn't have a cancer diagnosis when I was young. I was. I'm very lucky. I didn't have to go through what, what you've been through. But I think also, I think overthinking things, I, I can't imagine you would do anything but overthink things. If you've been hit with something horrific when you're very young, it's bound to really shake your certainty around the whole of life, really, isn't it? So I think then all those other decisions just become harder, don't they, really? And you will overthink things because people saying oh it'll be fine well it wasn't fine was it so I think it's it's understandable that that's that you would do that well lightning's already struck hasn't it I mean we've already hit by the the lightning struck and that's already affected us that's something that happens to other people yeah it's happened to you but actually yeah it's happened to us so it could happen again yeah Um, I almost want that on a t-shirt if I had had that on a T-shirt, there's so many times that I would have worn it underneath a shirt and just flashed it. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, I could have predicted you were going to say that. And you know yeah. what? It wasn't, was it? So <laughs> Maybe you could get it on a T-shirt now. It's never too late. Is it, it? Well, yeah, this is, this is very, very true. I mean, you don't want to be thinking the worst, but like, you know, like, as you said, and, and hearing it come out of someone else's mouth, it's like, yeah, that's so clear. This has been, you know, such a brilliant conversation with both of you. I really appreciate, Hannah, hearing what you've been through and what you've explored. And Cheryl, like, you know, you've really given some direction in terms of looking for those answers. So if someone's listening to this and is unsure, the sooner you know, there are tests that can be done. And I didn't know that egg donation was so successful. And all those, you know, those Hollywood people that you said you slightly resent being pregnant. (laughs) I would say a very large proportion of them are with egg donation. You do not have twins at 45 with your own eggs. Do you know this? So I think most of them are egg donation. And I I think one other thing to add, if you do look at egg donation, then your age becomes irrelevant. Oh. The womb doesn't go off with age. It's only eggs. So... Oh, that's yeah. That is really encouraging. Don't, have, don't describe yourself as old because you're not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much to both of you, and thank you to Radio Facilities for sponsoring our podcast. We are going to be talking more about infertility in part two of our series. Till next time, bye. Not your grandma's cancer show. <laughs> 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 <laughs>